It's Friday night. What places are you heading to for post-work happy hour? Tell us. This podcast is making a best of the best list and needs recommendation for happy hour menus at restaurants in KC. Text us at 816-601-4777. That's 816-601-4777. Standard texting rates apply. UpToDate wants to know what you're talking about with family and friends. You can text UTD to 816-601-4777 to tell us. Again, 816-601-4777. And welcome back. This is UpToDate on KCUR 89.3. Not long after Michelle Norris left NPR's All Things Considered back in 2015, she started something called the Race Card Project. This is her Peabody award-winning effort to spur conversations about identity. And this happens when people jot down a single sentence when responding to the prompt, Race, your thoughts, six words, please send. The stories are powerful, even in six words. Just three examples. My race makes me perpetually foreign. Reason I ended a sweet relationship. Too black for black men's love. Now Michelle is out with a new book, Our Hidden Conversations, What Americans Really Think About Race and Identity, and she's here in Kansas City today. The book is based on the responses she received from all around the world. Michelle, welcome to Up to Date. Always good to have you here. You're always welcome here. Steve, thanks. I I love Kansas City. It's great to be here with you. Well, it's said that every one of us has one great idea in our lifetimes, (laughs) and maybe this race car project was yours. Where did you come up with this idea of six words on this incredibly potent topic of race? Well, it it actually started in 2010 because I I wrote a- Even before you left Even before I left NPR, yeah. yeah. Um, I, I wrote- a family memoir about my family's very complex racial legacy. Mm-hmm. And I was on a multi-city book tour. I was you traveling. You were in here. Yeah, yeah. I was traveling to more than 30 cities. And at that time, I thought no one wanted to talk about race. That was my... Guiding principle. But yes. My guiding principle is that, you know, people would rather eat their toenails than have a conversation about race. And so I thought, I'm going to be out here talking. I normally am so cloistered in a studio, as you know. It was my chance to get out in the world and have a conversation with people. So I wanted them to participate, and I had to figure out how to invite them in. And so that's where the six-word idea came in. It's a really good idea. Well, you know, I I wasn't sure at the time. I mean, I knew because as a writer, I often will take a complex topic and try to reduce it to one sentence, and then I understand it. This would distill people's thoughts on a very complex topic toxic subject and it would get to the heart of it. I did it on postcards because I thought I could distribute them. I liked the look of the postcards. You left them everywhere, everywhere you went, hotel rooms, post offices, everywhere. Yeah. Yeah. Mm -hmm. And people, I I originally only printed 200 cards. And um, and to be honest, a lot of those cards came from people who knew me at, at in the Washington DC area at the first book events I did, but I kept leaving them up, you know, as I traveled around. And Steve, it was the intention in those cards because postcards are different than email. I mean, we get most of the submissions now online, Mm -hmm. but with postcards, you have to find a stamp Mm -hmm. and then you have to find a mailbox, right? Uh And you have to find a pen. And, And so most of the cards, the submissions that we get now come in digitally, but I still love the postcards because I love seeing people's handwriting. Oh, I totally get that. And what strikes me, the power behind this is, again, we're journalists. And when you have to condense, when you have to be succinct, God forbid, it's amazing how much power you can pack, even in six words. When people might look at this, they might think, oh, six words, what can you say? 
people say a lot. Oh, people say a lot. I mean, the cards that you you know that you just read. I'm only Asian when it's convenient. Yes, yes. White, not allowed to be proud. You said dirt, so I scrubbed. Mm, mm. I am not your damn China virus. You know, cards that are um, so deep. In, Too black for black men's love. The yeah, one I read. Yeah. I mean, that's just it's just so painful. Right, right. And you know, and yet you understand. Okay, I think I understand where she's coming from. But she decided to say that out loud and to say it to me, and that's why I knew I had to keep going. It was kind of a crazy hail mary pass. Um, I didn't know what would come of it, but when cards like that started to come in, I realized. I have got to keep going with this because people are often saying things to me out loud that they've never heard before. Um, 1972 drowning, not an accident. Mm, you know, mm, and then I started mm. researching some of the stories behind these cards. And what I realized is that the cards were not the end, but the beginning. Like I had to keep going with the project, but also as a journalist, as a storyteller, as a story collector, I had to figure out how to take these stories and learn how to educate myself, but also in some ways push stories out there that would otherwise be lost to us. That and that's what Our Hidden Conversations yes. is all about. It's yes. sort of just a natural extension of the six-word project, right? Right. And it's a combination of there are rivers of stories. So in, I write 12 chapters, prologue, introduction, and an epilogue, and then 12 chapters. And in between all of those chapters are a river of stories, mm -hmm. six-word stories. Some of them just six words. Some of them six words with backstories. Some of them six words. People would sign their names and send photos. There are 287 wow. photos in the book. Wow. But in the essays, what I tried to do is use the cards as portals to do deep dive research to understand some of the issues behind the cards. And if our listeners by any chance want to call in right now with their six-word response to Michelle's prompt, we're all ears here. Can I give you my six words? Please. Once oblivious, now sort of getting it. Okay, tell me the backstory. Well, just my own coming of age when it comes to understanding race a little better and understanding the plight of so many people of color right here in my own community here in Kansas City, the redlining and mm -hmm. all the stuff that's happened in this town, the inability to get the money they need to start businesses and, and one story after another. We've talked so often on this program about all these things mm -hmm. and I think I'm sort of getting it. Yeah, now. access and, to capital and as a is white a real guy, thing. It takes a while. Yeah, you and know? we think that sometimes that that communities look the way they do, offices look the way they do, neighborhoods look the way they do, pathways to opportunity look the way they do because it's just sort of anaerobic. It just sort of happened that way. When in but fact, not in this town. You know, it's usually a series of decisions, sometimes a rafter of laws um, that have led to those outcomes. And I know that people are very uncomfortable. Listen. I understand that race fatigue is real. I understand mm -hmm. that. And it's one of the reasons that I created this because I thought I have to invite people in. But after archiving more than 500,000 stories from all 50 states and more than 100 countries, what I realize is even people who are sick of it, who are tired of it, can't we just get past it, still have a story to tell. Yeah. Yeah. You know, and it's often an interesting story. And the stories are, we should say, it's not a litany of complaints. 
it's not all about racism. There's stories about triumph. There's stories about just epiphanies, you know, like you're like you're describing, just yeah. sort of waking up and understanding something that people didn't understand. There were so many stories in the book that that caught my attention. There's one by a man named Jamal Allen of mm-hmm. Des Moines. Mm-hmm. Uh, I know there's so many in here. I don't want to catch a cold here, but the essay is about the fact that most people expect Jamal to be black when in fact he's white. And he talks about how surprised people are when they see him and they say, I expected you to be in then they pause and maybe they say <laughs> taller or older when they really intended to say black. Yeah. And he points his point is that he knows something now about stereotyping. Yeah, yeah. yeah. And Jamal's story is really interesting. He lives in Iowa. Des Moines. Um, yeah. Des Moines, Iowa. Yeah. He teaches at North High there and he's now a dad. We've watched people grow up in this project. Um he got his job because of his name. Mm-hmm. A, a, a principal yes, was right. looking right. to hire someone <laughs> and uh, came across this this fellow in the binder of, of resumes named Jamal, and he listed Muhammad Ali as his cultural hero. And he noted that he was a basketball coach, and he liked spoken word poetry. And, and I so, need some diversity <laughs> yes, on my staff. exactly. And so here's my answer. Yeah, yeah. And so and Jamal flies cross country from Oregon, where he was, you know, raised in Oregon, in between a llama farm and a and a commune and uh, <laughs> named for Jamal Wilkes, you know, mm-hmm. his parents like the mm-hmm. LA Lakers player yeah, ab- and gets to Des Moines and everyone's like, Oh, <laughs> hello. hello. <laughs> <laughs> Welcome to our world here. Yeah. I also love the one and it's fairly brief, like as so many of these stories are from Alice Walker of gay Georgia, who told a story about her grandmother who died in 1960. I love this story. It's very short. Her grandmother was home alone one day when her housekeeper, Carrie May, came to clean. At one point, the grandmother made lunch for the two of them, and Carrie Ann instinctively uh, took her lunch out to the back porch to eat, even though it was cold, even though it was a rainy day. Then the grandmother insisted she come back inside to eat with her. I mean... (laughs) Story says yeah, a lot. Yeah, it does. About a different time. Yeah. And the child who watched that, mm-hmm. you know, the lessons that she took. So Carrie May's um, protocol was that you don't eat in the main house, uh-huh. right? You don't uh-huh. eat with the people that you work with. You go find someplace else. You know, it, many of us have read or have seen the movie The Help. You remember the whole right. thing there was yeah. someone having to build a bathroom mm-hmm. in another part of the house. Right. You know, if you've ever done any reservation, renovations, building a bathroom is not cheap. I mean, that's an example how racism can be expensive, mm-hmm. you know. Um, mm-hmm. But the child watched this and realized, oh, what a moment of grace that she witnessed. That her mom said, no, no, come in. Come in here and eat with me. And of all the things she could have written about, that's the thing she remembered. And and Carrie Ann was hesitant to come back in yeah. just be, because that was not protocol. That's not what you did yeah. in that time. You and, and, you know, and not far away in the in the book, um, there's another story that that sort of tells a different side of the story, you know, where someone writes, my aunt boiled the girl's utensils. And then in his explanation, he said, I think you know who the girl was. Oh, boy. So if the person who worked in that household had even used the utensils, they would have to be boiled. And that is, you know, a window into how people separate themselves Mm -hmm. and sort of create a notion that I'm I'm better than someone else. And sometimes that's what people do to justify the way they segregate themselves. Like yeah. they're not, they're less than human. And it's easier for me to think myself better because I believe that they're less than yeah, human. Yeah. And really we are all human. We'll be back in just a minute. 
You listen to this podcast every day because it's your KC local reliable news source. You take us seriously. But you know, we like to get down and we want you to party with us. Join us at our annual benefit, Radioactive, on June 14th. NPR's All Things Considered host, Ari Shapiro, is the featured guest at this party, and it's gonna be bumping. You gotta be there. Sponsorship packages and ticket information are available at kcur.org slash radioactive. I read one just the other night with a six-word headline. Again, this one just stops me because we had a Kansas City Chiefs player who died under similar circumstances here many years ago. But this six-word headline, Michelle, was, he can't swim, dad saves him. And it's about a black boy who was a great athlete but almost drowned because he had never learned to swim. The writer, Jim Bikonski of Virginia Beach, Virginia, figured out that the boy had never learned to swim because there was no place for him to learn how to swim. Yeah, yeah. and that's, you know, statistics bear this out. The drowning rates for people of color, for African Americans in particular, are over-indexed. They're much higher than you would expect. And it's often because um, they don't learn how to swim. And some of that goes back generations and goes back to policies where um, black people were not allowed to use public pools. And 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 over the years, some of those pools filled in because people didn't want white and black kids swimming together in the pool. Actually, in the book. In the book, you have that. We have that right next to each other. In some ways, these these submissions that come in, they seem like they're in conversation with each other. Mm -hmm. And we decided to juxtapose those two Mm. stories. Because another story came in from someone who asked, Dad, why is the pool filled up? And it was in Lynchburg, Virginia. And rather than allow, after the the laws changed, rather than allow young people to swim in the same pool, they filled the pool up and cemented it. And now over time, the dirt has sort of sunk. And you can see the contours of where a pool used to be. Yeah, right. The edge of the pool shows yeah. up in the picture there. Yeah. I, I was looking at it. I mean, you, you hear these stories and you just can't help but wonder, you know, who are we? What have we done to ourselves? How do you navigate the pain and the frustration and all of that that comes from your exposure to this on such a regular basis? You know, I think about where we are today and I don't think I don't take a lot for granted. You know, when I walk in a shopping mall and I see all kinds of people, when I send my kids to school in their integrated classrooms, when I see, you know, police forces and fire um, houses that have all kinds of people, I just don't take the integration of our country for granted, the diversity of our country for granted. And when people say, let's not teach this, let's not talk about this, I understand that it's painful to look over your shoulder and see some of these things, but it also is a benchmark that helps you understand where we have come yeah. as a country. And when you understand how far we have come, it does a few things. One, it provides guardrails against a returning to, you know, to that kind yeah. of um that kind of uh social acceptance, mm-hmm. you know, of these kinds of um obstacles, you know, that are placed in front of people. And it also allows you to really understand where we're at and 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 triumph in that a, a little bit. And it also helps understand that, you know, one of the the, the the things that we need to recognize that when you don't allow people to learn how to swim, to go to college, to go as far as their natural talents might take them, that when I was doing research on my first book, I came across um, 
the U.S. command of Negro naval personnel, and it was it was issued after the the armed services integrated after mm-hmm. um, 9981 was the presidential order was passed, mm-hmm. and each of the services had to create a document to sort of help the officers, you know, carry out these new this new inter- right. system of integration, and. One of the things in, in the Navy command of Negro personnel, which is such an odd thing to even have on front of a you know a cover of a military pamphlet, but the phrase that always stuck with me was um, that they had to let people go where their talents took them because to hold anyone back was quote material aid to the enemy. Wow! Wow! And that just struck me because it made okay at that point we were a nation at war, right? Right. And if if everybody could not serve. To their greatest potential, we were helping the people that we were fighting against. What a concept! Yeah, and, and it's something yeah. that I think we need to think about. Like, who is that kid that is not able to go as far as their talents will take them? Is that the person who might discover something that will yeah. be meaningful to all of us? Yeah, we've come so far, and yet I can't help but think how far we have to go. We'll talk in just a moment about uh, the sort of the Obama presidency and post-racial society and all of that. Let me get a call here from Becky from Brookside. Becky, you're on with Michelle Norris. Good morning. Good morning. Good to have you here. Thank you. Um, did you want to know my six words? Please. <laughs> Um, my six words are nice, let's see, best friend, ninth grade English class, Iowa. Huh. Because um, when I was uh, in ninth grade in Mrs. Pryor's English class in Des Moines, Iowa, I sat next to the only African-American girl in the class. And we became friends and we swapped notes and we giggled a lot. And it was really a a great experience for me outside of, you know, reading The Hobbit and all that stuff hmm. to um, to just to experience that friendship. It was really life changing in a lot of ways. So I just that's what I wanted to say. And um, I would say also it informs my life now. I register voters uh, for the League of Women Voters, right. and we are trying really hard to get into all the neighborhoods and all the parts of town, especially underserved areas, because they need to be registered and they need to vote. Best friend, ninth ninth grade, English, Iowa. Yeah, Des Moines, Iowa. Becky, thank you for calling that in. I appreciate it. Yeah. Michelle, Des Moines, Iowa is coming up a lot in this conversation. Yeah, Um, Yeah. Beautiful story. And, you know, it makes me think of the things that I've learned when I when I've done research on the roots of um, segregation in this country, and a lot of people were trying to prevent young people from being together. And one of the reasons that, you know, when you actually do the research and you look at the minutes from these meetings and you understand what was at work there, they knew that if young people actually attended school together, if they had dances together, Mm -hmm. um, if they played sports together, because, you know, there are all these secret games that people would have because they weren't allowed to play in the same leagues. Mm -hmm. Um, But the coaches knew that I want my guys to play those guys because they're going to push them. So they'd have these sort of secret games. The people who were enforcing segregation knew that if young people actually saw each other, that they'd see something of themselves and that it would be much harder to enforce segregation Mm -hmm. because, as Michelle Obama says, it's hard to hate up close. Yeah, You know, and when you actually see someone, and I see that in the work we do even in, we 
do work with universities and corporations, sometimes factories, factory floors, and you know where people are very divided politically, and yet when they're actually working together on the line, there's a trust that develops and a friendship yeah. that develops sure, and some of kind of wobbly tether that in the outside world politically they don't want anything to do with each other. You know, but they figure out how to deal with each other because of that proximity. Well, I, I see it all the time in my own students. I teach at the university up the hill here, and and the, the hope for the future is in this new generation. Mm-hmm. I mean, they seem just so oblivious, to use that word again, about all things race. I yeah. think they just sort of roll on, and it's it's absolutely remarkable to me and so fun to watch. It, it's the dividend and the challenge, right? Mm-hmm. It's the dividend of, of integration of that, you know, people do live together, work together, play together. Um, vacation in all kinds of places. But the challenge is that when you bring people of all those different perspectives, you know, it doesn't mean that we're going to have a lot of kumbaya moments. It means that there's going to be the gnashing of, mm-hmm. of ideas mm-hmm. and that people sometimes do clash and collide. And the the conclusion that I come to in the book is that instead of actually, I used to talk about common ground all the time and I don't anymore. You know, instead of talking about common ground, mm-hmm. I talk about creating cultural bridges. Mm. Where people can, you know, visit another idea, get to know somebody, but then comfortably retreat to their their own comfort zone. Right, right. You know, when you um, you talk in the book about this notion that we all talked about when President Obama became president, that was this idea of a post racial society, and in hindsight, sort of what a joke that appears to be now. Well, in looking back on do you, it, do you remember? I mean, oh that, yes, that I term, everyone was talking about. Everybody was, and, yeah. I remember just sort of being confused by it, but it, it was just so everywhere I, at the time. And I can't, you know, I've I've actually done research on this too. <laughs> yeah. I don't understand. Words don't enter the vernacular with the velocity that that word did. It was really weird. It was it's, only used in public discourse less than a dozen times before 2006. Right. And then suddenly it was everywhere. It was salted mm-hmm. through our political commentary. People were so we've I don't solve the puzzle on we yes, go. Yes, yes, we're done. We've mm-hmm. we've reached the the the, the you know, as line. if it was yeah. actually a race. Like mm-hmm. the black and white checkered flags. Woo, we're done. Mm-hmm. And in retrospect, when an African American family was moving into the White House in this country, where um, authority has looked a certain way, you know, where many of us in um, this country have not had a neighbor that looks different than us. Mm-hmm. Uh, many of us have never had a black boss. And then suddenly you had a black president who was making decisions about when or if we went to war, who was making decisions about our tax code, right. who was making, you know, the ultimate authority. And then next to him, you had a black attorney general, mm-hmm. you know, highest law enforcement officer in the land. That created a certain amount of vertigo that we probably should have anticipated. And the backlash we experienced in 2016. Yeah. Yeah. And really starting before 2016, you yeah. know, people... Um, and you know, and, and listen, I, I say this in the book and, and I will stand by it that if you, if you look at the way that minorities have over time been treated in our country, our wonderful country, mm-hmm. but despite all of its, everything that makes it magnificent, if you look honestly at how minorities have been treated, you might be reasonably concerned about becoming one. Mm-hmm. Yeah. Yeah, yeah. You told uh, Brian Lehrer of uh, WNYC that you originally predicted that most of the responses you would get to this project would be from people of color. Mm-hmm. And I'm wondering why. And I sort of get that, but I also think that so many white people are so conflicted. There's so much guilt yeah. on this topic that they would have a lot to say, too. Well, I, I thought most of the respondents would be 
people of color and probably primarily black people because in my experience, most of our conversations about race, you know, are led by black people or are targeted toward black people. Mm-hmm. I mean, you know, you're a journalist. You understand that something happens and there's that part of the contact list. Oh, we need to call this person to come in and talk about it, right? And mm-hmm. it's usually a person of color and it's mm-hmm. usually a black person. It's That's often right. someone who's a member of the clergy. You know, it, we fall into these patterns. And white Americans, in my experience, had not really participated fully in our conversations about race. And I actually thought, you know, a lot of Latinos, a lot of people who are indigenous, who are, you know, have other ethnicities or other races also don't fully participate. So I thought maybe we'd see a lot of people of color. But in the 14 years that we've been doing this, in the majority of the years that we've been doing this, the majority of the submissions submissions have come from white Americans. That's interesting. Yeah. And so when people pick up the book and they see all the pictures and they see all the stories and they see many of the chapters I write, it's a book about race, but it's often surprising to people, wow, there's so many stories in here from white Americans, mm-hmm. from middle America, from small town America, from mm-hmm. mountain states and southern states. And and that was a – I, I, I not – this is not an understatement. I was truly astonished by that, but in a good way, mm-hmm. because mm-hmm. as a journalist, it lo- it allowed me to go to places that I can't get to right. otherwise. Right, right. And it helped me. Usually, when we talk about race, it's because, and I say we as journalists, right, as storytellers, we're talking about it because something's happened in the outside world, right? Mm-hmm. It's interesting when you let people set the agenda. And you say, it's just broad, race, whatever you want to talk about, race and identity. Mm-hmm. And I often talk about it now as race and identity, not just race. And they decide what they want to talk about. It's often very different than yeah. what we d- would decide to talk right, about. Right, Interesting, interesting. Um, I'm struck um, by the fact that at the, at the uh, race has been the forefront of the latter part of your career so much, Michelle. In 2010, you mentioned the book that you published, your first book, The Grace of Silence, a family memoir that dealt with secrets from your own family's past and how America talks about race in the wake of Barack Obama's presidency. Remind everybody what you came across and what you wrote about in that book, because we talked about it a number of years ago when the book came mm-hmm. out, but it's a really compelling story. Well, you know, I, I was raised um, by parents who talked about, you know, race. I mean, we had, I lived in a house full of books. So, yes, we had books about the civil rights movement, and they talked about it. My father's from Birmingham, Alabama, so I knew what the deal was in Birmingham. But I didn't know how personal the stories were to them. There were just things that they didn't talk about. That's why I called it the grace of silence. They had good reason to be angry at an America that they loved and didn't love them back. My father was wounded in um, an altercation with police officers. He was a very zen, very quiet man. But when he had returned from his service in the Navy, and that's why I was researching, you know, the U.S. Command of Navy Navy personnel, Negro Navy personnel, um, he was trying to enter a building in Birmingham, Alabama called the Pythian Temple where men of color who had returned from the military were going to learn about the Constitution because in order to vote, they had to pass a poll the test. test. Yeah. They had to show that they fully understood the Constitution. And so these men who had participated in the fight for democracy overseas came back and said, game on. Mm-hmm. You want us to know about the Constitution? We're going to go we're to these learn. night classes mm-hmm. and we're going to learn about the Constitution. My father um, – tried to enter a building and and what had just happened is a law had passed a, a Supreme Court had, had rendered a decision in Smith v Allwright which outlawed um, white only primaries and so people in southern states um, and you know this was an issue here you know in Missouri and in Kansas oh, and you sure. know not just in the deep south sure if 
people of color were allowed to vote, that was going to change the political calculus. And so police officers were trying to stop some of these men from entering the building. My father asserted his rights. A scuffle ensued. And he was wounded when a, wow. a gun discharged. He had a scar on his leg. I knew that as a kid. But he never talked about he it. He never talked about it. He never told my mom. Mm-hmm. And it was one of the things That's- I learned from one of my you know, aging uncles and then from another aging uncle. You know, when people get older, if they're thinking it, they're saying it. And uh, and another uncle who was in a period of disinhibition shared a story about my grandmother, who was an itinerant Aunt Jemima and would travel the country yes. during pancake demonstrations. Right. And my mom never talked about that story. But when I learned about it, I thought, my goodness, I understand why but people talk about it. But she approached it in a very interesting way, your yeah. grandmother. I mean, yeah. she she didn't speak the way they wanted her to yes. speak. Yes, thank you for remembering talk, that. She didn't yeah. talk black, right? Yeah, but, yeah. I mean, so they were given – there was an army of these these women – and she had her five state region included Minnesota, Wisconsin, the Dakotas, Iowa, and Michigan. Mm-hmm. Um, I, I actually looked this up. There were two who worked Missouri. Um, there were like six that worked Texas. I mean, they they had this army wow. that would go out and do pancake demonstrations, and they were given a script, and they were told, "This is how you talk, and this is what you do." And my my grandmother, who was big on education and was proud of her diction would not use the slave patois. Mm-hmm. So mm-hmm. she knew she was going to these small towns and people had never seen a woman of color before. And she's kind of treated like a celebrity. I mean, I wouldn't right. did all this research on her and, and uh, Aunt Jemima's coming to town and there'd yeah. be banners and everything. Right. And then she would show up and she would speak in this diction that I remember. And she knew that she could leave people with an impression mm-hmm. if they heard her speak you know, with kind of the king's English. And she wasn't supposed to do it that no, way. No, she wasn't. She was she going wasn't. against she the wasn't. the dictates it of the time. Subversive. Yeah. Yes. Well, so what do you hope comes out of our hidden conversations? What's your What's your hope? I I hope that people um, read or listen to the book. The audio book is beautiful because so many of the people are reading their own oh, six wow. word stories. Wow. And in the, when I did research, I recorded many of the interviews. So it's not just my voice. It's it's all it's a symphony of voices. If you listen to the audio book. I hope that it is catalytic. I hope that it sparks conversations. I hope it creates introspection. I hope that it is the centerpiece for discussions and debates, and most of all, curiosity. And it's such a good idea doing this in six words. My hat's off to you for coming up with Thank that. You. That's just a Thank great idea. Thank you so idea. much. Michelle Norris, again, the book, Our Hidden Conversations, What Americans Really Think About Race and Identity. She appears tonight at 7 at Unity Temple on the Plaza. The event is sponsored by Rainy Day Books and Fairway. More information on that, rainydaybooks.com. Her race card project, go to theracecardproject.com. You're a wonder. What a pleasure to have Steve, you here. Steve, thanks. Thanks. Up to Date is a production of KCUR 89.3. The program is produced by Zach Wilson, Elizabeth Ruiz, Claudia Brancard, and Hallie Jackson. Paul Nakatura is our announcer and engineer. The theme music was composed by the great Bobby Watson. I'm Steve Kraske. Thanks for listening. the environment in kansas we're working on it up from dust is a podcast about how humans reshaped the world to fit urban landscapes and agricultural needs we'll meet the people who are rolling up their sleeves to find more sustainable ways forward listen to up from dust from kcur part of the npr network